to be with you. Thank you for the welcome uh, that I've received already. It's a great joy to be here. My name's Hamish. Uh, I've met some of you in varying contexts. Many of you I haven't met. I serve as the assistant minister just down the road over the river in St. Andrews. Uh, many of you will, I know, uh, already know Paul Clark, uh, the minister there who serves as the interim moderator here. So it's just worth saying we, we love our partnership with you guys, not only formally as part of the Free Church as a denomination, um, but just informally. We owe a great debt of thanks to the Lord for the way that St. Peter's many years ago planted St. Andrew's Free Church, uh, and it's a joy to pray for you, just as uh, my church family are doing this morning as well. So thanks for having me. Um, I'm also looking forward to being here on the 4th of December as part of this presbytery visit that you'll have heard about already. Myself and a couple of uh, gents from Edinburgh will be visiting. It'll be great to hear how we as a presbytery can serve you better uh, and encourage you through this time of not only vacancy, but just serving Dundee with the gospel, uh, making Jesus known here and further afield. Uh, would you turn with me back to 1 Kings chapter 2? If you uh, still have it open, that's great. If not, just flick back to whichever page number uh, it was that you have in front of you. That's where we're going to be. Uh, and let me pray and just ask for God's help as we turn uh, now to hear his word taught. Gracious Father, we praise you uh, that we can come before you this morning, not doubting whether you are for us. We know it because of Jesus Christ, your son, the king, the king who came, the king who died, the king who lives, the king who reigns now. We've just sung of him, Father, in Psalm 45. And we pray now that our experience in heart and in mind together would be of hearing his voice address us as our king. Would we hear your voice address us as our father? And by the power of your spirit, shed light into our hearts and our minds, that we would go from this place changed, loving Jesus more, following him more closely, and in every way in your power, seeking to live for him and with him as our great king and shepherd. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And now I wonder, as we gather, and, and this is, you know, I'm not going to do a show of hands because I know audience participation can slightly be uh, tedious, but I wonder how many of you know of or have ever read any um, poetry or stories by Rudyard Kipling. I grew up with Kipling, uh, not literally, but in our family. And my grandparents were brought up in India before World War II, and my grandfather was an enormous fan, so I was slightly indoctrinated. Uh, one of my favorite stories when I was growing up was one that he wrote called The Man Who Would Be King. You may be more familiar with it as a film. Uh, Sean Connery and Michael Caine star in it. It follows two British soldiers. Uh, they've got good names, Daniel Dravot and Peachy Carnahan. And they desert from the British Army in India. And they go off searching for a kingdom. Not just because they want to make their fortune, but because actually they want to rule it. Uh, it's called The Man Who Would Be King because Daniel sets himself up as the king of uh, this foreign kingdom up in the northwest of Pakistan. But it all goes wrong for them. Uh, it's a spoiler, forgive me. Uh, but whether you've read it or not, whether you've seen it or not, it does not end well. Because Daniel Dravot is a man who is unfit to be the king. Starts well, it goes wrong, and both metaphorically and literally he loses his head. Now why are we thinking about this? Well, it's because what we've got this morning in us, uh, in our word, is really a, a portrait of the man who would be king. Uh, here is David, the great king of Israel, passing on the rule of God's kingdom to his son Solomon, his successor. But as we listen in to the instructions of a father to a son, of a crowned head to an heir, we're actually getting more than just the pattern of kingship for Solomon. 
what we're getting is the pattern of kingship, the portrait of the man who would be king for Israel throughout her history. Uh, We're we're jumping into the middle of a section of 1 Kings. It runs all the way to the end of chapter 11. It's basically Solomon's life and death. But this section of 1 Kings, these first 11 chapters, not only show us about Solomon, it actually gives us a little outline, a framework for the whole book of 1 and 2 Kings together. Because what we see is the picture of who Solomon should be as king. We see the start he makes, and he ascends to great heights, only to fall from those heights into depths of folly. Tragically, that's the story of Israel's kings. They start really well, and it goes really badly wrong, and God must act in judgment. So what we're hearing here in miniature is a portrait of the whole. And of course, as we listen to this, we are listening to it, reading it as Christians. We've been singing all over this morning of Christ as the King. And so actually, we're hearing a little portrait, a foreshadowing of who Jesus himself should be. So in many ways, what I'm hoping is going to be achieved for us this morning, what I'm praying for, I'd love you just to pray even silently now, is that as we listen to David to Solomon, we would build up a a layered picture of who Jesus Christ is. You know when you go to the opticians and they're testing your eyesight, at least this is my experience, you get those multiple lenses they put in front of your eyes to to show you better just how bad your vision has become? Well, that's what will be happening for us this morning. But our vision will improve. We'll have three lenses put in front of us that, Lord willing, will help us get a really clear picture of the beauty of Jesus Christ. And the first uh, lens that we see here in terms of the king of Israel is that the king will be faithful to the Lord. Look down with me again, if you would, at chapter 2, and it jumps off the page, doesn't it? David's last words, when his time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. It's interesting, it echoes actually the words of Moses to Joshua, back when Moses handed on leadership to Joshua entering the promised land, another big threshold moment in Israel's history. Be strong, be a man. But that's not just kind of chauvinistic, macho commands to go and be a great warrior. It's not be a strong king like the rest of the nations. Do you see what true strength for Israel's king will look like? True strength is to listen to Yahweh to hear the word of God. You notice how many times that focus on God's word comes up in those verses. Five times in different ways, David presses the privilege and obligation on Solomon of listening to God. Keep his charge, walk in his ways, keep his statutes, commandments, rules, testimonies. As it's written in the law of Moses, Solomon, you've got to be the strong king who follows God faithfully in every way. If we'd read chapter 1, we'd have met Adonijah, who was a a would-be king, who was all flash and no substance. He made a good show, but his heart was very far from the Lord. And David says, look, you've got to be the reverse Solomon. And any king who's going to follow after you, you must listen to God. Uh, This follows the pattern of kingship laid down in Deuteronomy 17, which may well um, appear on the board behind us. It's stressed there 
that the king of Israel must be the one who knows God's word. You notice, even as you read that behind me, he had to make his own personal copy of God's law. So that as he wrote it, and you students will be familiar with this, you know, as you write, allegedly, stuff goes into the head more. Well, here, the king is meant to write, and it goes into his heart, so that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left. You must be faithful, Solomon. And the result, David says, is so that he and his kingdom may prosper. Do you see that at the end of verse 3? In all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not luck a man on the throne of Israel. It's going back to 2 Samuel 7. Some may be familiar with that. The great covenant God made with David. That there would be a, a forever king on the throne of Israel. He'd be called God's son. And he would be the one who walks with him. And as that happens, it's like a a fountain that kind of overflows from the top and then goes down every tier. As that happens, not only will the king prosper, but actually the whole nation itself will prosper. The king is the head of the people. And as the king goes, so the nation goes. That becomes Israel's story. As Solomon goes really well, the nation goes really well. And as Solomon craters, the nation craters. You know, that would have been the, the hard thing, I think, for the first readers of this passage. Because they weren't listening to this in the golden era of Israel, with Jerusalem flourishing, and the palace soaring over all the other buildings, and the temple in pride of place in gold, with pilgrims flocking to it, praising the name of the Lord. They're listening to this in Babylon. It's written to exiles. The temple is a shattered hulk. The articles for worship have been taken away. The people have been scattered. The king is a client vassal, taking scraps from the the table of the emperor. And all because the king was not faithful. Solomon abandons faithfulness when you get to chapter 11. It's a tragedy. It's, It's worse than King Lear. Because he leads the nation in idolatry. And he worships the abominations that are the false gods. And the kings follow him. It becomes a refrain. They did not do what the Lord commanded. The the scroll written in Deuteronomy 17, whether it was written or not, history remained silent on. But they certainly didn't listen. And so judgment came. This is not how Solomon walked. And yet, as we listen to what the king should be, It's a little bit like a a dotted line gets laid down for us because the king must be faithful and the line runs from Solomon and it judges most of the kings that follow him. Some are faithful but most aren't but the line keeps running literally because the line of David keeps running until that line finds its terminus in the truly faithful king. For each of these, we can see how it is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the truly faithful king. Consider the comparison. Solomon was meant to know the law and keep it, yet he failed. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that he has come not to abolish the law or set it aside, but to fulfill it. 
In every line, in every dot of the smallest bit of punctuation in the Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus says, I have come to embody it, to obey it, to bring it to its perfect conclusion. He isn't just faithful in what he does. He is faithful in himself and is the portrait then of true faithfulness to God. Particularly on a day when we celebrate communion together, it's helpful too to think of how that is brought to its purest distilled form in his death on the cross. Consider Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. Consider Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Consider Jesus as he dies. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Believing even in agony. Consider his final words. It is finished. But what is finished? The mission his father gave him to do. Christ was faithful unto death himself. And so he is the true king. Now, a lot of our applications today really are, are not so much to do, I suppose, with hands and feet and lips. There's not much ethics that come out of 1 Kings chapter 2. But I want to suggest there is loads that will change and deepen and enrich our hearts. So if Jesus is the faithful king, we must praise him. We must thank God for him. We must look to him. I wonder what that would look like for you, to meditate on his faithfulness and to praise him as a result. So the king will be faithful. Secondly, though, if you look down again with me, you'll see that the king will be wise. Now, we could really just have this point as the king will be wise in his justice or the king will be just in his wisdom. Because as David continues talking, uh, those two things come up over and over, wisdom and justice, wisdom and justice. But as the book unfolds, Justice is dealt with first, then the rest of chapter 2 looks at his justice, and then wisdom becomes a huge theme in these first few chapters of 1 Kings. It's one of those really big Bible words, wisdom, but it sometimes gets overlooked. Although I think recently in your life as a congregation, you looked at Proverbs, so I suppose you guys will be quite well up on, on what the Bible teaches about wisdom. What is the beginning of wisdom? Again, no audience participation, but hopefully you know it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Faithfulness is going to show itself in wisdom. Here, the refrain is, be wise, Solomon, or rather, you are wise. Look down with me at verse 6, if you would. Uh, David's commanding him to be just, to do justice on those who oppose David. But he says, verse 6, act therefore according to your wisdom. Verse 9, again in the context of justice, do not hold him guiltless for you are a wise man. And it's perhaps the defining feature of Solomon, wisdom. It's 17 times in the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings, wisdom comes up as a word. Interestingly, it doesn't appear once afterwards, because actually the kings are now fools. But the king must be wise. He is to be wise. He is to apply in life the lived fear and knowledge of the Lord, obeying in everything what it means to love him with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. And isn't wisdom elusive? I've had to resist as I was preparing for today and as we preached through 1 Kings back in St. Andrews to make constant parallels to our worldly leaders. Although, I mean, it is pretty tempting. Where is wisdom in the public square? Well, marked by her absence, it seems, in public life. 
But, you know, actually, rather than, than wagging the finger, though praying for wise leaders is good. That would be a great prayer for your hustings that are coming up, that someone would be wise to represent you. It's actually more fruitful to, to come a bit closer to home, isn't it? It's easy to look out there and say, where's wisdom? But, but actually, it, it's challenging to look in here and say, where's wisdom? And I'm not just looking at Craig and having a crack at him and saying he needs to be wise, although I could. Actually, we've got to look at ourselves, don't we? We need wisdom desperately. As a father, I'm confronted with my lack of wisdom, what to say or not to say to my kids. As a pastor in Christ church, I'm confronted by my lack of wisdom and the desperate need for it almost every day. As I look at the, the relational challenges that can flourish, sadly, in church lives, so often lack of wisdom is at the root each one of us now, we could think and meditate on where we are in desperate need of wisdom. You see, it's not just Solomon who needs it. And so where do we go for wisdom? Israel were to go to their king. He was the one who was to lead them wisely in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Yet the kings failed again. Actually, they're marked by arrant folly rather than godly wisdom. They become fools who despise instruction. And yet again, wonderfully, gloriously, Jesus doesn't. You know, wisdom is a lens that we won't often think of, perhaps, in relation to Christ. Yet the Gospels make clear in Mark 6, for example, that his words are wisdom and wise in themselves. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, says that Christ has become wisdom in himself for we who believe. To the Colossians, surrounded by a world that says, here's wisdom, here's wisdom. No, 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 over here's wisdom. He can say, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. He is the truly wise king his people need. So let's ask him for that wisdom. Do you lack wisdom? Hamish, do you lack wisdom? Yes. Well, go to Christ, wisdom himself, the one who speaks wisdom and who gives wisdom. Ask him for it if you lack it. Look to his death on the cross where that wisdom again is embodied, the wisdom that makes foolish the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that upends worldly categories and displays what true kingship is like, not ruling but serving not lording it over people, but Christ laying down his life for rebels like us that we might believe. As we eat and drink later, we're we're taking on tangible tokens of the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ the King. What a privilege. What a privilege. So the King is to be faithful. He's to be wise. And our last thought this morning as we listen to David, the King will be just. As I've said, wisdom and justice kind of go hand in hand here, don't they? And you can see that that wisdom is going to show itself in both judgment and blessing, just judgment and just blessing. First, judgment is very clear. Verse 5, you also know, Solomon, what Joab did to me. It refers back to some unjust murders, kind of assassinations, basically, of people who opposed David, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war. 
Act therefore in according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. The death sentence is passed. The wisdom must be exercised in how that comes about. Now that falls perhaps uh, harshly on our ears. I'd encourage you to read on in chapter 2. And if you want to talk about any of that, either theologically or ethically, I'd love to after the service, genuinely. But judgment is part of what the king must do. Judgment is part of what the king will do. He will come and he will judge all those who oppose him and the God of the kingdom, Yahweh himself. Uh, In verse 12, you could look at it, you see that um, Solomon's throne is firmly established. At the end of chapter 2, that same phrase is used, the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And those two bits of bread show us that the sandwich matters, the, the, the filling, and the filling is judgment. It is the judgment of the king that ultimately establishes the kingdom firmly. And it's impossible for us today to hear that without thinking on what God's word says about the judgment of Christ the king. That he will one day return. He has been appointed as judge. Proved by his resurrection from the dead. But his judgment will ultimately establish the kingdom fully and finally in a new creation. As all that is evil is done away with. The king, though, also will be just in his blessing. Notice that in between uh, the two instructions to judge David's enemies, we also have an instruction to bless, verse 7. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. See, the king will judge rightly, but he will also bless rightly. He will bless those who are for the king and the kingdom. He will welcome them into fellowship with him, not just showering treasure upon them, not just giving them slightly dodgy titles, not just giving them parcels of land in the back end of beyond. No, he says, look, come and eat at my table. We don't have to force the application here today, do we? We have a table right before us for the king, the judge, blesses and welcomes to himself those who are for him, those who believe in him, those who trust in him. He is just in all his ways, Jesus Christ. And you know, it may be that there's someone here today who, who isn't a follower of Jesus. Maybe there's someone here today who is feeling very keenly the injustice of the world, the oppression that so often can come from the systems we live within, Maybe from opposition, from an individual. Jesus is just and he is for you if you would have him. Why not trust in him, perhaps for the first time? You know, for others of us, though, many in this room, I know we will be followers of Christ. We will be for the king, imperfectly though that is. And so as we close... What we've got really before us are are 3D glasses, to push the cinema metaphor, 3D glasses with which we can see Jesus. We see him in his faithfulness. Where are you in need of remembering that Christ is faithful? I hope that would be a balm to someone here today. 
we see that Christ is wise. How wonderful that he is wise. Let's go to him. Maybe in the quietness as we pray shortly, you might want to pray for wisdom from the king. And we see that Christ is just. He is just in his judgment and his blessing, but ultimately he is just because he is the one who makes us right in God's sight. You see, Christ is just and has justice done upon him. As his body was broken on the tree, as his blood was shed for sins, we think this is unfair. How can we benefit from such a death? And yet he voluntarily, willingly, lovingly goes in faithful wisdom that we might know him and that we might see God. Now I wonder if sometimes we can have a a, a flat understanding of what it means for Christ to be king. I've tried to ask myself in, in meditating on this passage, where does this deepen or broaden or stretch my own vision of of what it means for Jesus to be king. You know, we say that phrase quite a bit, don't we? Jesus the king, or in a kid's talk, King Jesus. What do we mean when we say that, when we think that, when we pray? For myself, I think it's, it's revealed that I very quickly think in terms of his authority. He's the Lord over all, and you know, that's true. That's good. It's a foundational part of the gospel. But we see that that authority Uh, refracts beautifully like a a beam of light through a prism. For he is always faithful. He is always just. He is always wise. So let's reflect together even now on the beauty of Jesus. Not mighty in the way the nations are. Not aggressive, not conquering. David doesn't say, Solomon, man up and go and beat people up. He says, no, be godly. Maybe that's the summary. The king is to be God-like. The king, our king, Jesus, is God-like, for he is God. And the privilege we have today is to know him. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you again in prayer humbled by your goodness to us in Jesus Christ, your Son. Father, we're very conscious of our own weaknesses. Thank you that you have forgiven us in Jesus as we've already confessed this service. But we acknowledge again before you that by nature we are faithless, foolish, and unjust. We acknowledge that in history for Israel and then on through the ages, our own human leaders are so often those things too. And yet we pray that this would only lead us to a keener and deeper sense of awe and wonder, of thanks and praise, of trust and prayer, of listening, of loving, of discipleship. In Jesus Christ. Thank you for his faithfulness. Written in blood. Thank you for his wisdom. Displayed in death. Thank you for his justice. So willingly taken even on himself. 
and so graciously given to we who by nature are guilty. We pray, Father, that by your Spirit, this word would dwell in us richly this day. As we sing now of your love, write it deeper on our hearts. And as we come to this table, the table that in his blessing the King invites us to, we ask that you would feed us on him as he is in all of his majesty and in all of his grace. For we ask this in his kingly name. Amen. Well, as I just prayed, uh, we are, before we share the Lord's Supper together, going to sing again, I believe. Great. It's always a good sign when the band stand up because that means that uh, you're on the right track. We're going to be singing of God's love, how deep the Father's love. So as the band begin, please do join with me and we'll join our voices in song.